Are you ready to begin? I am. Hello, this is Sad Girl Syllabus, a commentary on media through the ages. Each season, we have a new syllabus to dive into. I'm Bethany. And I'm Mary. And we're two girls. Too sad. Let's jump into the <sighs> syllabus. I did it. <laughs> we did it. We got it right. Whew. Seamless. <laughs> we don't have to do any pre-recorded shit. Just ready to go. We're on top. <laughs> oh, yeah. Hello, Mary. Hi, Bethany. <laughs> We're back after our intermission in between wars. A little extra credit. <laughs> Endless war. Uh, Endless war. And now we're on to uh, World War II. World War. That such a romanticized, mm-hmm. so much media. I was, um, as I was think- preparing for this episode, I was like, stupidly, I was like, wait, what? Like, I was like, what movies are there? I can't think of any movies that have like the sad <laughs> wife myth. And then I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, there's so many, obviously there's biographies, fiction, and then movies galore about World War II. It is... It, there's just it's too many like and why world war ii why not world war one I? I just it's crazy maybe there's just more records there might be more records and like technology at the time right. to you know like they are making movies about world war ii during world war ii yeah um i also think yeah and then the generation that generation continues to live on during giant hollywood yeah life cycles. And I also think that, you know, World War II for the Americans um, is like the noble, yeah. the noble war. Yeah. You know, that is, you know, where you can just paint them as heroes yeah. um, and all their sacrifices as, you know, this is a just war. I, in fact, had, I just remember this, a philosophy class on war theory, just war theory. And that philosopher or that philosophy professor was like world war ii is a just war oh. maybe and that's how, I mean, it's a catholic school yeah so that's why we talk yeah. about war is possibly just um but yeah <laughs> that world war ii you could argue was a just war yeah i've i've had um i've had many many people well people here in new mexico specifically consider it a just war because um because the atomic bomb was built here and first detonated here Um, and wow yeah so there's a lot of that um I have met the grandson of the pilot who dropped the bomb and um he is fully you know he he fully subscribes to that um yeah and naturally you of course have like literature that says very much the opposite right Right. like slaughterhouse or um catch 22 yeah where it's like no this isn't just it's all war is meaningless all war is meaningless yeah there's um a really interesting i also have met um uh, a woman who was president i think or director of the los alamos historical society los alamos is the um where 
the labs were where they uh where they made the bomb and um she did a while she was director of the historical society she was completing a phd at university of new mexico in history and she did her she wrote her dissertation on um guest comments in the comment book of the historical society um mm-hmm. because you i think the the los alamos historical society it either is located at or it reconstructs the oppenheimer house um and who was like a major yeah um, uh yeah part of the the invention of the bomb and um people write the she says that the comments run the gamut of like a lot of people are like this is really um, this is an amazing piece of history like thank you for illuminating all of the history thank you for um going through the nuance of los alamos thank you for talking about this addressing this and then there's also comments that are like this war was meaningless this has just fueled like the invention of the bomb is the most um abominable <laughs> invention and um yeah. she wrote her dissertation on like how do you approach as a historian and specifically a public historian how are you approaching the interpretation of this major historical event um and how do you like hold all the nuance and all the complexities and the contradictions of what happened mm-hmm. so yeah super and so i guess yeah tons of media comes out of that because um because of that too because people want to people want to explore those different perspectives through storylines um books and movies right yeah there's there's just, I guess, starting this episode by saying there is no way we will cover every facet of how- you thought last <laughs> you thought the Civil War episode was long. <laughs> yeah, how World War Two is covered via media. Yeah, no possible way. <laughs> That's a whole like a podcast in and of itself, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is going to be I would like caveat lots of gaps in this. Don't get mad at me. <laughs> Yeah, that's the disclaimer. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, I I decided to in one night again. I don't know why I, I do this to myself, like trying to watch <laughs> multiple movies in one night. I think I do it for like to prove, you know, to prove something to myself. But I tried to watch Casablanca and The Reader in the same night. Oh, wow. I have never made it through The Reader. I I always fall asleep. And, you know, it's always at the big reveal. Like, spoiler. <laughs> Sorry, this is a podcast of spoilers. Um, the at the big reveal when you find out that Kate Winslet is a Nazi, <laughs> um, or worked <laughs> worked at a concentration camp. Um, yes, I always think that like you have like a, a full hour of movie after that, and I always think like, yeah. okay, I made it to this point where it's the reveal, and then there's a full. I've never seen the end of it. Well, because the movie, the movie is audacious. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time, but it's like, oh, you thought that her being a Nazi was the big reveal? Guess what? She's illiterate. <laughs> oh, and yeah. Just like, come on. But like, is that really the main <laughs> crux of the story? But also, like, she, you can tell, like, to, to me, the most of that buildup is you're just waiting for the boy to figure out that she's illiterate. Right. And right. you know that she's illiterate. Yeah. 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 But I, I have some problems with that movie. <laughs> it's so weird. I forgot. There's a part where like she, like it really ramps up to the sexuality 
mm-hmm. quickly. Like she begins her relationship with this fucking teenager so quickly. Um, and it and it seems like, wait, this happened way too fast. All of a sudden she's like, she's like giving him a bath. And then all of a sudden she's naked. And it's just like, this is what the hell? It's so weird. It is weird. <laughs> it's a weird movie. I um that with Casablanca is a really weird pairing. <laughs> But I will say of the movies we've been watching for this, um, there's a lot of more variation in women's roles and there's a lot more romance centric World War II movies um, because there are more active women's roles within it. So as nurses, as spies, as collaborators, whatever, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as in the reader, Nazi prison guards, um, Jesus Christ. I was like, wait, why did I choose the reader as like the sad <laughs> stay-at-home wife? Like, wait a minute. This is it is not. flips it on its head. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it was also, I mean, it's it's an Arentian story. Like it's like fully right. banality of evil. Like she's illiterate. She had no idea what she was doing. There was no possible way that she could understand what was happening because she wasn't reading the news. Um Feel like you could assess some stuff. You could have listened to the fucking radio. (laughs) Listen to the radio, looked around, paid attention to killing 60 people at one time. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think (laughs) the movie lets her, if I remember correctly, lets her off the hook a little bit too quick. Anyways. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But there are, yeah, there are a lot more um like romance-centric ones. There is still the stay-at-home uh, sad wife. And then there's lots of also like Band of Brothers-esque, like here we are as men forging bonds in war and I miss my wife at home. Right. And I'm right. going to tell that story, but there are no women in this movie, um, which I did watch Band of Brothers, speaking of which. Oh, wait, hold on. You know what we should have watched <laughs> is Atonement. I know. I was thinking about that. I know we didn't do it. That has like two. Well, one really sad girl, but <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Sersha again. I know. I know. She keeps coming back too. What a little bitch. <laughs> <laughs> she did not atone. Uh... <laughs> oh man. Um, it's funny. Atonement is sort of like, it's almost, um, it's kind of doing the same thing as the thorn birds. It's chronicling like many decades. Mm-hmm. I like that. It's another, it's, it's a, it's an epic. I like those stories, but yeah. Why didn't I watch Atonement? Goddamn. Well, anyway, yeah. Casablanca was also really funny. Well, cause Casablanca revolves around, she has this love affair with Ingrid Bergman has this love affair in Paris with Humphrey Bogart. For the whole time that I was watching it to you last night, I was like, Henry Bogart. No, that's not. <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> Sounds weird. Uh, <laughs> Henry Bogart just seems not the thing. Anyway, um, the characters played by Ingrid Bergman and Humphrey Bogart have this love affair in Paris while and, and the whole reason why they have this love affair is it's because Bergman's husband in the movie um, is in a concentration camp. 
and she has no, there's sort of this, she has no idea whether he's going to come back alive, whether he's going to survive. And that seems to be this um, big underpinning of like the romance centric stories around World War II is like, you have no idea if they're going to come back. It's this insane war mm-hmm. that um, that is all encompassing. It's a world war. It's, it's all, it's many nations polarized against each other and people are being drafted and the women don't know. And then also you have on top of all of that concentration camps where like, you have no idea if your person is going to just be scooped up and, and never return. And so that's sort of the, the problem for Casablanca is like, she then realizes that he is alive and she's just like, Oh shit. (laughs) He's like leader of the resistance slash prince of where Czechoslovakia Czechoslovakia okay yeah um right that makes sense and yeah and then in Casablanca it's post takes place post that affair when they end up in Casablanca (laughs) uh yeah yeah because that was the port to escape right yeah and at Humphrey's bar right (laughs) all the gin joints in all the world she had to walk into mine I, when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Casablanca. I thought that it was, I mean, I, everything about my being embodies sad wife. Like I love, I love longing and I love yearning. I love the pining. (sighs) It really just. I don't know, something about it. And so all of the lines in Casablanca, I was so obsessed with them. And yeah, I like, I don't know why. I Yeah, it was such a phase. I had like a fully like 1940s phase where I just thought it was the best thing of all of the gin joints in all the world. Oh my God. Anyway, and then he saves them. Um... <laughs> <laughs> the end. But she chooses to leave with her husband. Yeah. Yeah. At the end. Right. She does not go with Humphrey. She does the like noble thing instead of really what her heart wants. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, it's an interesting, that's like the Clytemnestra arc, I guess. Mm -hmm. She's not, or well, no, she's both. She embodies both because she has, she, while her husband is away in the concentration camp, she thinks that he's dead. Um, She has another um, affair with this person. She's not faithful to her husband while he's away but then ends up being faithful to him so i guess she's both never mind <laughs> mm. it's also a little like tale of two cities right yeah. which is also wartime um of the like noble sacrifice yeah. for the one you love to be with the the more heroic figure or whatever yeah. like yeah even though come on everybody would choose humphrey <laughs> every time stupid question he's so sassy he's so sassy he's great however the i don't remember the actor who plays her husband the character's name is victor laszlo he's hotter than humphrey bogart oh for sure humphrey does not have the typical good looks but he does have a a presence yeah and i i couldn't be bothered to google this to actually find out (laughs) to actually just say whatever you think (laughs) but i feel like i had heard uh um an urban legend that Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman actually hated each other. And it was either that or like Ingrid Bergman hated kissing Humphrey Bogart. 
Bogart because his breath smelled. But then, and I was like, wait, is that true? Or is that actually the story of uh, Clark Gable and mm. what's her name in, in Gone with the Wind? And that actually might oh. be the case. I'm pretty sure they hated each other, the Gone with the Wind people. And huh. I'm pretty sure that Clark Gable's breath smelled really bad. <laughs> but again, I couldn't be bothered to Google. Maybe I'll do that right now. <laughs> Wait, there was recently a story of someone's breath smelling bad in a movie because they got too into their character acting. Who was it? Ah, oh, shit. I don't remember. <laughs> oh. Again, just like <laughs> the sad girl syllabus research. <laughs> just fragments of half memories that we don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> That's the essence of sad girl culture. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Clark Gable's breath was bad. He had um he had teeth, teeth issues. He had a full set of dentures when by the time he was 32. I some John Adams shit, actually. Oh my god, it's all the same. Literally, for oh my gosh, this is like all I mean, correlation does not equal causation, but sad wives have to deal with bad breath. Maybe that's why they're so sad. Their life is future. (laughs) Um, Okay, back to the point. Back to the point. Well, one other kind of fascinating thing about World War II is that you do have all of these actors, celebrities, professional athletes having to go to war and then later making movies about it, which is kind of Elvis going to World War II. I mean, it was a stint, but... (laughs) (laughs) lots of propaganda (laughs) bullshit joe dimaggio you know they're all off yeah it is sort of wild it is yeah um, imagine that happening nowadays Mm -hmm. wow Mm -hmm. just bonkers to imagine a draft where like it doesn't matter who you are you are artillery yeah and the people who got out of it like frank sinatra for example (laughs) um are like lambasted their whole life for not being in the war look guys swerving too skinny their duty yeah yeah (laughs) oh my gosh yeah I think that it's uh this is interesting this notion of like everybody being a resource everyone in America being a resource which bleeds into this like women's role thing that's where Rosie the Riveter Mm -hmm. comes from is that like well all the men it's their duty to serve it's their duty to fight and protect the country and so, and like, how are you participating in the war effort? Nobody gets right. out of it. And so the women have to, um, the women then step in and fill these roles. And it's like, it's a, it's uh, tricky and it's hairy because women are finally um, acknowledged for their, for their ability, for their intelligence, um, women as scientists, as um builders as whatever they finally get acknowledged for this but then but it's all because they're being used as resources and propaganda machines of right the u.s government so there is yeah women in factories women in science roles um filling in where the men who have been enlisted and drafted um 
and then there's also things like victory gardens where the U.S. government is telling people to have a garden to sustain their family because of food shortages, but it's packaged as doing something for the war, mm-hmm. that you are a patriot if you have a victory garden. And I think that carry, definitely carries through on the cottage core of today. Absolutely. Um, that it's it's a noble and righteous thing to have a garden. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally moralized. Yeah. And then there's, I mean, I think there's a few, actually a few more movies kind of and and stories about women in the war effort as like taking over what was a, a man's job. But, and then the trouble when, like the the difficult circumstances when the men come back and uh, um, both you're expected to be a housewife, but then there has, there's been an opening yeah. and there's, an, there's a door that you mm-hmm. cannot close mm-hmm. anymore. Um, and that, you know, I think definitely is a seed of women's liberation in the sixties and seventies, mm-hmm. the women's movement, but more than that, not more than that. I just want to talk about a league of their own. <laughs> Which I have never seen. Oh, wow. I look, League of Their Own is not a perfect movie. (laughs) It is essentially just montages. Like that is half of the movie is montages, but I do love it. It's just really charming. Um, But that's about the creation of the Women's All-American League. Okay. Um, So that, you know, most of the men are off in the war that played professional baseball. So they are like, oh, I don't, we don't know what to do. Um, So we're going to have women play baseball. And it was really short lived. Honestly, I think the real thing like lasted a year in the movie, they make it seem like it lasted longer, but that movie is based on like the first season of the all American League, women's all American League. Nice. And (laughs) yeah, it, it has, it does have actually like quite a nice depiction of it focuses on two sisters really gina davis who is like the natural Mm -hmm. she is the talent they play softball for they're like from oregon they play softball and they're like dairy league um and get scouted her sister is the one who wants it though so gina davis is married her husband's in the war she's like oh no i'm not davis i forgot i knew that she was in it but then i forgot and she is very beautiful in it she like should only really be in 40s period yeah. is because she looks great yeah in those costumes um <laughs> <laughs> and but her sister's the one who wants it her little sister yeah. um and it is like they really drive it home a little hard about you know making sacrifices for your family mm-hmm. um what she does in the end spoilers if you haven't seen league of their own <laughs> but in the end eventually they're on the same team and then her sister leaves to another team and it, they're in the home uh, they're in the World Series. Oh. And um, it ends with her sister running to home base and um, Gina Davis, who's the catcher, uh, letting go of the ball. Like they run it, collide into each other and she lets go of the ball. But you've already seen that Gina Davis definitely can hold on to the ball in those situations because she's the best athlete <laughs> in the world, according to this movie. Um, <laughs> so she, you, you know, She's allowed this for her little sister who's lived in her shadow Um, because it means more to her. And yet Gina Davis is really struggling the whole time of like, I don't want this. I don't want this. She keeps saying, 
And everyone around her is like, don't you want to say you did something with your life? Don't you want to have this like memory that like you were able to make something of your life? It's making me tear up. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I love that movie. It's really good. And the montages are great. It has Madonna in it. it. Has Rosie O'Donnell. It's yeah, it's a heavy hitting cast for sure. Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks is incredible. Um. Anyways, <laughs> sorry. I'm gonna stop talking about this movie. I hope to take some of this rant out, but it does really get into the like. For all of those women, this is seen as an opportunity that they would never ever have, and a chance to escape the life that they are forced into. So, like the for almost everyone minus Gina Davis's character (laughs) they're so thrilled they're just like I had to get out I had to get out of that small town yeah and this is the this is the chance the opportunity yeah yeah I think it's really funny that before I respond with a comment I think it's really funny that I'm you're getting verklempt over something that is like um you know noble and good and I'm just like getting sad and choked up about Humphrey Bogart (laughs) I love Humphrey Bogart. And also, I think it's lightly said in the movie, but, you know, this is just a capitalist scheme to keep making money. Right. You know, that that is what it is, is baseball owners being like, oh, shit, we can't lose money during the war. Okay, let's get some women. And then as soon as the men came back, they're like, okay, bye. Yeah, yeah. Which is largely what happened. Um, I mean, the men return and they're just like, okay, you've done like... The men return and they're like, you've done your your duty to country. And then they're like, also, you ladies, you have also done your your duty. And so go back to making jelly. <laughs> the jello and the jelly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go back to just like being a being a diplomat, a diplomat's wife kind of thing. Go back mm-hmm. to being a sad wife. But you're totally right. Like it became it became an opportunity. The women seized it and then it was and then it it gives way to the women's movement like absolutely not we're not gonna go back to the the same shit yeah I think I noted this but it does feel like there's like different categories when we're talking about women in these world war ii movies of the like there is the band of brothers saving private ryan kind of movie where it is just men in combat yeah um and there's stories about women back home but you really never see a woman I think in Band of Brothers, there's one woman in like one episode and she's a nurse. That's the best episode, the medic episode. Okay. Anyways. Uh, (laughs) And she's a love interest. Um, And then there are the like women at home or, you know, how they're dealing with that kind of movies. And then, and those are pretty few and far between mm-hmm. I think for mm-hmm. World War II and then there are more of women in an active role in the war as a nurse as a romantic figure mm-hmm. there are a lot of women as nurses and romance movies English patient most notably I guess um <laughs> oh yeah or as collaborators as spies you yeah know, there's also that yeah which, it's a moving past I mean yeah you really see women more diversity in women's roles at the time. Yeah. And um, I, I definitely do want to talk about atonement, um, but I'll leave that till later because when you say like the, the, all the stories, like women as spies, women as collaborators, all this stuff, I do want to talk also about um, like 
when you're going into history of the science and the technology behind world mm-hmm. war ii mm-hmm. there's also this um in keeping with the very millennial girl boss women's empowerment history nowadays you see like let's talk about cryptography let's talk about the invention of the computer let's talk about all of this like technological advancement that was brought about by the war and the major inroads that were made by women scientists during that i um have also been um through my work with like with schools and um like humanities based work i have I have seen a perspective of like high school curriculum in the last year of, and specifically like, like when you're like a junior or senior in high school, it like the curriculum really zeroes in on this world war II era kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what's really popular with a lot of teachers is to specifically like get kids incentive, incentivize kids researching women during the war. And you have like, let's talk about, how like the women scientists and especially i think that this comes from especially here in new mexico like what i've been seeing about like history history curriculum here is like let's talk about all the women who are working at the los alamos labs let's talk about all the women who are like these computer scientists who majorly like did really cool shit there's a lot of there's also Mm -hmm. like major um even when people make movies about uh alan turing like they specific like there's a lot of focus to like people you know they've it's it's a tokenization thing i think when they focus on like his um woman partner yeah who also helped create um create the computer yeah that's his is it did they marry i think they did okay but just to as a obviously as as a cover yeah yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So that he wouldn't be punished for being gay, um, which was, of course, like futile <laughs> um, right. since he was sentenced in the end. But um, but it's it's curious. It's this curious thing where in the same way that the founding mothers are characterized as like used as a way as a tool to like prop up the well-roundedness of men there. I feel like there's a parallel there in the history of like um like well women also contributed and like they are like these women these women at home like there's almost it's it's weird there's almost this like poor women couldn't fight but here's what they did to help the war effort kind of thing and it's um Mm -hmm. yeah I mean it's exactly what you're saying it's all part of a propaganda machine right I mean like obviously well like this is the there's this in world war one but now that you have way more media, mm-hmm. way more media opportunities. The World War II propaganda machine on all sides is like out of control. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> there's movies being made. There's, it's just, it's nuts. Yeah. Um, so we have both their propaganda from that time. And then we have like today's current propaganda yeah. of making movies about World War II and how great the U.S. is. Um, of course, there's many, many um, movies about World War II that are not from a U.S. Yeah, viewpoint, yeah. as we said. But like those kind of movies about like the nobleness of the U.S. and World War II, um, it's just funny that it's still like nationalistic propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- what was interesting about Casablanca, and I wish, 
I need to, I, I would totally rewatch it just to like really think on the like messaging and the propaganda morality. Like obviously mm-hmm. the ending, like you can, you can analyze um, Elsa's choice to stay with her husband as like a, you can analyze that and read that as like a pro ally. Um, like she chose to like, she chose the resistance kind of thing because I see Rick Humphrey Bogart's character as being in this weird, like, I mean, he, he really is the stand-in for the United States. Like he's neutral. He's completely neutral and almost morally ambiguous up until the point when it really counts. And he, and he, um, you know, aids in their escape, um, from, from Nazi occupation or whatever. But um, he it seemed at the very beginning of that movie, there's you see a lot of uh, and I guess this is like a, another aside from like the sad wife thing. But you see this um, portrayal of uh, peop- these soldiers who are not necessarily I mean, well, they're Nazis like they like you they have the swastika on the jets. You, you hear a lot of Heil Hitler, um, but they're mm-hmm. they're not necessarily like they're still a little bit removed from the Reich. Um, they're just like occupying or like they're part of like the occupation. And even though Casablanca is technically unoccupied France at the time in the movie, like they're still like, there's still this Nazi presence and the movie doesn't really, um, the movie treats those Nazis with a lot of neutrality. And cause mm-hmm. I was trying to think about like, okay, I think about movies that are being made, um, now today about uh the war on terror like the afghan the war in afghanistan the war in iraq and people don't necessarily like cast like they're not casting characters to be like on the on like from al-qaeda from the taliban like they are but they're not have like those characters are not taking the kind of role that the nazis took in casablanca And like, if there's any kind of characterization about anybody in the Taliban, anybody in Al Qaeda, it's specifically to dehumanize them, specifically to make them evil. And, uh, you know, that's like also part of this propaganda. Like these people are terrorists. This is why there is a war in Afghanistan. This is why there's a war in Iraq. These people are like scum of the earth evil. But in Casablanca, you don't see that. Like there is no demonization of these Nazis. It's it's there. But it's definitely not as like, I mean, you you get a little bit of like a sense of nefariousness from the Nazis, hmm. but it's um, not as it's it's not as dialed up, I guess. I wonder if that's it because it's set in Morocco. There is like a, a distance from the Holocaust. So it like it doesn't they're they're not playing on that aspect they're not bringing that even into the conversation mm-hmm. um so it's more of a neutral like oh we're in war yeah well though so yeah you do have a character who's been to a concentration camp so right and and yeah it's really subtle these like moral choices um again that's why i think like rick is this stand-in for the united states or like you could read it mm-hmm. as that um because he eventually like helps the person and he like finds sentimentality. He finds like tenderness and love for this woman and like saves her husband and allows them to escape or whatever. But like, it really, you really get the, it's really illuminating and revealing 
the true neutrality that the United States had in World War II up until December 1941. Right. And exactly. And isn't that what he says too? Like there's a line in Casablanca. Um, he's getting, Rick is getting drunk because he has encountered Elsa, who he didn't think that he would ever see again. And he says, December 41. I wonder what they're doing all the way in America. And it's like a subtle mm-hmm. nod to um, that moment, that defining moment when when the U.S. enters the war. Um, but yeah, it's it's interesting, like as as a mirror or as, as an analog to the United States participation. Um, whereas, like any kind of film made about the uh, war in the Middle East, it's like there is no ambiguity there, like the terrorists are terrorists kind of thing. That's a good comparison though, because it does seem like in a lot of movies, there's a real, um, occasionally you'll get it in a World War II movie where it's like some of those guys are have no idea what they're doing. Right, well, as, you know, with, like as in the reader. On both sides, yeah. <laughs> I'm still on, out on that one. <laughs> it would be more believable to believe it would be more it would be more believable and i would be more on her side if she didn't like fucking go after this 15 year old boy yeah she's she's a creepy lady not to also not to get too far from our sad lives but my favorite movie about world war ii is actually like it is from 1942 Mm -hmm. so like Americans are barely in the war. Um, to be or not to be. It's a comedy, a black comedy by Ernest Lubitsch, who is a German Jew um, and has multiple actors in the movie who are Jewish or also German Jews who like literally had to leave Germany a couple of years before. And it's about a, a troop of um, Polish actors who sort of unwittingly, <laughs> but um, become like uh, spies, like camouflage themselves to take on the invading, to dismantle invading forces mm. um, plans, right? That are going to ruin the Polish resistance. It is <laughs> so good. It is the funniest movie I think I've ever seen. <laughs> the, the, it's just like top notch. It is also like the bravest movie I've ever mm. seen to be making a movie, making fun of World War II and making fun of Hitler and Nazis in during World War II made by a Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Like you're like, wow, this is incredible. Um, who literally are affected. Yeah. Like had to leave Germany yeah. um, just a few years ago. Uh, and also like is ripped off that movie is ripped off like no other. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that, like Quentin Tarantino's yep. rips it off. Yeah. So Quentin Tarantino, this is a message to Quentin Tarantino, actually. <laughs> like I got your number, boy. Not only did I almost see you run over a woman in the Simi Valley Regal Plaza parking oh, lot <laughs> in like 2011. <laughs> Not only that, but he... Quentin Tarantino always, you know, like that's his thing is that he takes from other movies, he appropriates, he makes this collage and he's very forthright usually about right. his movie influences, right? That's his whole, his whole stick. 
he never names this movie as an influence on Inglorious Bastards. He really? never ever names it, even though there are scenes in Inglorious Bastards that he picked, like he just picked from to be or not to be. There's a whole that whole theater scene, the whole theater plot. Oh my god, like, it is crazy. That's weird. Um, it's just, what does he stand to gain? I I was like. The only because he's usually really forthright yeah, about that. Stuff. Yeah. The only thing I can think is that he made this whole presence of making these revenge movies, and it's like, but the and these like alternative histories. <laughs> but someone already did that for the Holocaust, you know, like someone already yeah. did that. So what's the ingenuity? It's already been done. <laughs> but in sorry, in to be or not to be. Um, Carol Lombard is incredible in it. And she is, she's an actress. She's married to Jack Benny, who's the actor. And they have this like rivalry going back and forth of like, who's the better actor. And they're both really stupid, especially Jack Benny. But she like starts cheating on him Mm. with this young resistance fighter. Mm -hmm. And that's how they get involved in anyways. But as with like almost all Lubitsch movies, there is like a love triangle in which someone really cheats on their spouse. Yeah. And it doesn't matter in the end. They just go back to being happy and they're like, whatever. And they like, don't even talk about it. It's incredible. <laughs> That's like uh, this admission of like, times are hard. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. It's like, but we still have each other. Right, right. I think that that like the, the um, uh, I think that that's in the reader as well, where it's just like, well, of course you're going to like fall in love during this like post, like during a time of severe crisis. Like it doesn't matter who you're falling in love with. Like you just need that human connection kind of thing. Like weird, um, weird, morally ambiguous shit going on in terms of like relationships, like romantic relationships kind of gets excused because it's just like, it's a time of crisis and like everybody is entitled to love and it was like such an unfathomable thing the the war was um like inconceivable mm-hmm. like you you feel like the world is crumbling around you you hear that those kinds of lines in all these movies too it's like the world is ending the world is crumbling around us so might as well live it up <laughs> cheat on my spouse sleep with a 15 year old jesus christ Actually, I learned this this morning. In A League of Their Own, there is this like sexual romantic tension between Tom Hanks and Gina Davis, of course, but they don't act on mm. it because they're good people and Gina Davis does love her husband, Bill Pullman. Um, Who wouldn't love Bill but- Pullman? Oh, what a hottie. <laughs> okay, sorry, I had to say that. He's an underrated Yeah. Hottie. He often, I feel like, not while you're sleeping being the exception, In he's like the supporting guy in a lot of rom-coms or romances where he gets left for someone else it's kind of sad but in a deleted scene they did they do have the characters kiss um and then do act on it um but they took it out of the movie because i don't know like american audiences couldn't handle that or something (laughs) some of the the like cheating and the like Love Triangle and the Lubitsch movies do does really feel like oh it's European you know like mm. <laughs> he loves a love triangle that does not get resolved he loves it uh, yeah yeah Evil and Wa too a British the British author right right yeah <laughs> you're just like oh I guess it's a little different over there 
American, American, America's perspective on Europeans is always like, oh, wow. Like America is so puritanical and modest. Everybody likes to think that we're on the cutting edge. Mm -mm. (laughs) No, I know. It's like routinely. I feel like I see this a lot in film where people are losing their minds about a French film that came out because it has like incest in it or like it's kind of racy with kids in it. I'm just like, have you guys never seen a French or like movie? a girl this sticks like- her finger in a guy's butt and everybody's like, oh my God, <laughs> people lose their minds. <laughs> like the French, that's what it, <laughs> like Europeans are promiscuous and Americans like take serious offense, but then people like Quentin Tarantino like makes like unfathomably violent movies and americans are like this is fine this is this is just masculine energy (laughs) yeah no note about that they don't care they don't yeah oh my god um yeah that (laughs) well if quentin tarantino watches or listens to sad girl (laughs) podcast, mary has a message for you dude I got your number, Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um yeah, I uh wait, speaking of like sexually promiscuous, okay, I do want to bring up atonement for real now. Um okay. Because I I think that it does a really interesting thing in terms of again, like using World War II as, as the vehicle and using this like sad wife, like the woman at home has to like work out this shit while the guy is there. It uses that plot device and World War II as this vehicle. However, the story does this incredible thing. Like it's an incredibly um, interesting and it gets your, it gets your mind thinking about like morals, morally, moral ambiguity, Uh, and you're really like left pondering, like, what is the, like, what is right and wrong? It it does, it does a similar thing to, um, well, okay. Another spoiler. It does a similar thing to the beguiled where there's this false accusation of rape. Um, and, and it takes like a very real threat to women, um, the threat of being assaulted and being raped. And then like, but then uses that to a nefarious end and and you have this and you're, and you're stuck questioning, like who is atoning for what that bitch Sersha like does not, like she gets to live a happy, wonderful life. Nobody else does. Everybody else fucking dies young. Um, And, and, but yeah, it's, it's doing something really interesting where it's not um, like that Kira Knightley, that bitch is sad. Cecilia is a sad girl and she has to deal with her sadness while Robbie is off fucking doing Saving Private Ryan shit in France. Like, <laughs> and, um, but she, but she is like stuck with like this huge, this huge thing. I mean, essentially in atonement, Robbie gets sent to war as his punishment for raping Cecilia but it's a false accusation and it's this whole thing about punishment and, um, and, and atonement. It's literally about that. And I, but I think that it's, that it's super interesting to use world war two and like, it's such a ripe historical moment, but then it, but then it becomes a, a secondary plot. It's not about like the wife being at home sad. 
it's about like the drama of this family. Mm. And it does, um, because it's in World War II, I mean, obviously the stakes are higher, but the actions, her actions have more consequences, yeah. right? Like had she accused Robbie of search of whatever her name is, I don't remember in there, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Search's character had accused Robbie of, um, of raping her sister. Um, pre-war or mm-hmm. without a war going on, he would have been punished, but where that would have gone from there it is unclear mm-hmm. and instead what happens is everyone dies mm-hmm. and uh Saoirse's character is left to deal with a life of attempting to make up for yeah. it uh of fantasizing about what could have been um and dealing with the the guilt of what she did yeah there is no possibility of atonement for her yeah yeah because because of world war ii yeah and they were sucked into the atrocity and even and and um this also ties in a little bit to this idea of uh it's a very english story in the sense that like they are affected so materially because the war is happening there cecilia dies in the blitz um or like as a result of one of the bombings um during the blitz and there's material risks of being in in Europe at the at the time, um, which is so different from um, the material risk in America. Like there is no like America. The U.S. can just be um, uh, the sad girls can like be the sad wives can just like be at home and like help the war effort. They're the scientists. They're the Rosie the Riveters. Um, they are like doing all this stuff and like and and developing maturing as a generation or whatever because they don't have that material risk and like um and and even the material risk happens at pearl harbor which is still at a great distance from the rest of america um and so you don't you don't really like feel that and i think that that also plays into this like speculation these like just war theory speculations and people (laughs) and people of course the people like living in los alamos who are inventing the bomb and detonating the bomb testing it out here and like putting together the science to win the war or whatever like they don't have to they don't have any material risk for that um except for the downwinders uh in new mexico like also like yeah um so there's this whole like yeah it's it's the the united states can can continue to churn out this world war ii propaganda because they um they're at this distance and like women can sort of you know it's a it's it, you can say that it becomes a good development for women because then they can make these um, major, they can make major progress because like they're finally allowed to fill these roles that the men have left empty because they're fighting kind of thing. Um, but still there is this like massive, massive distance. The war itself is happening an ocean away. You don't have to deal with the shit that you had to deal with during the civil war. Yeah. Which is, yeah, I think if we were doing a more focused, um, like, sad wives of Europe yeah. during World War II, <laughs> or sad wives of Japan, um, or sad wives of really half the world, um, <laughs> that were being bombed and invaded, um, it, would be di- it would be a very different episode. 
you Absolutely. know, this yeah. is definitely U.S. focused, um, U.S. white women focused <laughs> because obviously there's also Japanese American internment camps. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is kind of hard to pin down there. Yeah, but in this small inclusion, right? You do see, yeah, like really an interesting develop of women's role in the workforce, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. their role in politics. Um, all of well, that. yeah, it's it's um, this is also World War II is also happening after women in the U.S. get the right to vote. Um, so yeah, it's really like <laughs> it's a girl boss origin story. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, and it's, it's just the, you could say that the women who are quote air quotes left behind or whatever during the war, you could say that they metabolize their sad girl, their sadness, um, and, and turn it into like turn it into something good. But I mean, I know that you were saying that about women entrepreneurs earlier, but, um, and they just like turn it into ruthless ambition. However, in, for, in the war effort, like it's, it's not just ruthless ambition. It is like, it's, it's ambition to a, to an, a meaningful end, I guess. Yeah. I I do think that's actually a really good point. And a lot of the people, you know, behind victory gardens, like, supporting people starting those or were women's civics clubs, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. I think really kind of took hold at this point. Um, There's up the street for me, there's a women's 20th century club, which was founded, right. I think either during or after world war two to help. Yeah. During world war two to help with the war effort. Mm -hmm. Um, And then continued to be, you know, a woman's club that did a ton of stuff, Mm -hmm. including like getting women, admitted to like Occidental College oh, yeah, um, yeah. and and things like that. Mm-hmm. So a ton of like political organizing, I, gu- I guess, in the end, some of it propagandistic, but also civic minded um, that I don't, I don't think was there before to that level, yeah. to that community building. Yeah. Um, well, and um, like we talked about this with the American Revolution, like people like to sort of patronize women's efforts or whatever and say like, oh, they were just embroidering. But like there's it's like, well, no, think back to like what was happening during World War II, the women's the war effort and women's roles in that they were like reading the philosophy that was coming out at the time they were reading and they were discussing things um, of relevance as they were in the American Revolution. You just don't see that. But then in the 20th century, when there is like um, there are ways to like publish mass communication and mm-hmm. um, put things out on the radio kind of thing. And like, there's a posterity and a longevity to these, to these movements. And it's like, um, yeah, women had, had very specific roles. They felt they stepped in to like, keep society going, but they were also like doing what they've always been doing throughout history. They're participating in the in the culture, in the, the like meat of the stuff. Like they are reading the discourse. They are having their own discourse kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think even more than like, more than women, like stepping into industrial war, 
like roles because the men are away. Um, being having a draft and having men um, drafted in the war and, and leaving women behind, mm-hmm. um, then kind of shifts a focus of like really makes it clear that the poli- politics of the home are politics of a nation. You know, yeah. when it it becomes so centralized of that the really the caretakers of the homes are the ones who are almost the few left in the country um and then how the country functions from then on and how much it depends on them yeah um and i mean yeah again the u.s is different like we i think had the fewest casualties of course Mm -hmm. because we're not being fucking bombed Mm -hmm. um as compared to like what russia like lost a whole generation yeah you know like so it's different <laughs> um <laughs> uh yeah uh, but it does seem like the beginning of of a lot of change in changes in women's roles in uh, the u.s and there's also it's also interesting to um to think about like so women are are being left at home And there's like this absence, but you could also read it as like, yeah, there's an absence of like the men or whatever, but then there's Mm -hmm. a huge influx of Jewish, Jewish refugees to America. Mm -hmm. And there's this influx of like, like there's people love to talk about the stories of like, um, like the, the Jewish people who escaped the concentration camps and then went on to be major figures in history, Ludwig Wittgenstein my fave i know your favorite my (laughs) oh yeah um talk about a whole podcast just on one thing um anyway um uh and also and ludwig ludwig wittgenstein's nemesis karl popper um although he didn't he didn't escape to america he couldn't get to america he went to new zealand but um you know like the two major major figures who were able to escape and had massive effects on culture because of their philosophy. Um, but then you also see that through in artists, um, visual artists, writers, literary figures, um, scientists. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like this, um, it's, it's an interest, like the culture that you would have lost had, um, had those people not escaped and had they not had like this, um, like a haven, a safe haven. Mm. Um, and then of course, yeah, you have to, um, but you have to also balance that with the counter, the counter narrative, which is like, it wasn't a safe haven <laughs> for Japanese people right. in America. So, um, and it's not like Jewish people also haven't faced tons and tons of discrimination right. in once the they US. got here. Yeah. Right. Uh, this is not related, but I'm going to say it anyway. But um, I love Paul Salon, uh, the poet <laughs> yeah. who was who lived through concentration camps, um, and he has this poem of meeting Heidegger, <gasps> and Heidegger is straight up a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, I will he- hear no ifs, ands, or buts about yeah. that. Um, and I think Salon, I. I might be pronouncing his last name wrong, Um, but Solon liked Heidegger's philosophy Mm -hmm. and kind of was trying to reconcile Mm -hmm. that with the fact that he was a Nazi who never fucking apologized Mm -hmm. um, and was totally silent about it. 
but he met um Heidegger and his like mountain estate thing and went to his little cabin where he had met with like his little Hitler youth that he educated mm-hmm. and there's like a guest book that Salon's like looking through of all of these like Nazi signatures anyways the poem's good it's essentially like you couldn't even fucking say you're sorry yeah um yeah the reconciliation after that after the war in literature is is plentiful yeah i guess yeah of of attempting to understand what the fuck just happened yeah yeah absolutely and that's also why i love eichmann in jerusalem by hannah my girl another another heidegger uh, related i have their i have a book of their letters that i have never read or have have yet to read um uh and it's their their love letters back and forth um and that is like why don't people make a movie about that i mean i know that there was like a sort of biopic about her um but like they don't really touch on that they just like touch on her writing about eichmann in jerusalem which is the and i mentioned this in a previous episode too <laughs> um uh eichmann in jerusalem is the the book about Hermann Eichmann, who is um, tried and hanged for being the um, architect of the rounding up of Jews and sending them to concentration camps. The the solution, the great solution, I think, the final, the final solution. solution. Yeah. Um, and and she covers and and Arendt herself is a Jewish refugee in New York, um, and she covers this uh Eichmann's extradition and trial in Israel and but she had a love affair with Heidegger while she was a student and um why don't people people someone needs to make a movie about that <laughs> it's a yeah one of it's confounding yeah a bit Arendt I will say is like a person who is very hard to pin down and yeah so yeah she really does not like to be grouped in to anything to yeah label. that's uh, why i like her great, too yeah a great interview with her um because she's received she received a ton of criticism mm-hmm. for eichmann and jerusalem mm-hmm. because she's critical mm-hmm. of israel mm-hmm. um and critical of of the judicial policies after mm-hmm. the, the war um and she continued to be critical yeah. of Israel. Um, anyway, so she's received she received a ton and ton of criticism, um, lambasting for those. And yeah, there's this great interview where she's like pretty old and she is just fucking chain smoking <laughs> yeah. throughout the interview. <laughs> and he's like, Will you ever go back to Germany? And she's like, Oh fucking no. <laughs> are you are you what? No, no. I'm not. Yeah. And she's like, he's like, can you forgive those people? And she's like, um, no, I never want to see them. Yeah. Like, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah. I she's like a fascinating figure. Yeah, I do love her. At my all women's college, we had to like the if you were majoring in philosophy, basically one of the requirements was like your final year, your senior year, you had to take a class on a rent. Uh, it was a full semester on her because it was like a woman philosopher for this all women's college girl boss (laughs) it's like a her and uh simone de beauvoir like yeah 
they're like, oh, these are women philosophers. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many more, <laughs> but Jesus. Well, Christ. but like de Beauvoir, it's like, that's like everybody's favorite, every all women's school favorite because it's just like what was the name of her book the second sex or yeah the second sex and so it's just like we are second to no one (laughs) mary and i are both doing the like moving head (laughs) side to side (laughs) sassy i mean she also is complicated yeah yeah she definitely for sure tell me a little bit more about that personal relationship (laughs) with such i don't know Uh, (laughs) um but yeah it's uh I, I, yeah, I love a rent and I love, I absolutely loved Eichmann in Jerusalem. I think that it's so, because, and, and I don't know, it's just such, it's really tell the criticism lobbed at her for that. Yeah. It's really telling because it's just like, um, it's this, she, she reveals a very human thing, which is like the need for punishment and the need to hit back. She reveals this um, human desire and then, but also names it for what it is, which is barbaric. It it really truly is. And so it's just like you, like you have barbarism meets barbarism, like this Nazi who um, just mindlessly devised ways to kill as many people as possible, as quickly as possible which like name that for what it is barbaric and evil. And then you just have like, and then what you're going to just try to hit back by hanging him. You're going to try to like, make it okay. Like you're going to try to say that one life is equal to millions of lives. That's also barbaric. And, and it's, um, yeah, it is fascinating. It really like, it changed my life a little bit. That book. I, I think actually she's like, so relevant today obviously but when we talk about like fake news and the way you see these like neo-nazis um but uh (laughs) uh conservative um pundits who are able to say absolutely fucking nothing like make absolutely no sense but hitting these like key buzzwords Mm -hmm. again and again and again which is like some of the banality of evil in that book is that eichmann speaks in like business legally he just uses stupid ass cliches again and again and again where he's absolutely saying absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. but um they're able like in her argument the nazi bureaucracy is able to hide behind that language Mm -hmm. to do atrocious things Mm -hmm. and to not think about Mm -hmm. it either um and you see you see that happening in like our our fake news yeah you know like that words are meaningless when you treat them this way and they give you power to do fucking evil evil things and i think that people and people knew this before prior to the 2020 election but people are really getting a sense of it now today in 2022 that the dnc makes use of that too there's like oh my god yeah sorry this was not today yeah this is like the politics of today yeah um and and just yeah the the people in power it's like the when you think about the people in power today in the u.s specifically um it there is no the parties the party system like democrat republican it all falls apart they're all doing the same thing and like the biden administration you know runs on these campaigns of like we're gonna right these wrongs 
but then ends up using the same like weird bureaucratic business term. It's like, it's like in American Psycho, there's that part where Patrick Bateman is like, we need to feed the poor. We need to do all this. You know, he has this whole spiel about like, he's uh, performing his morality and he's like, we need to do this, this, and this, but it's like, it's completely this like peacocking show. Mm But yes, the meaningless words of like the posturing, the photo ops, the I'm going to do this, this, and this. Here's my buzzword for the day. Aren't I socially just? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all, it's all just the same shit. It's all the same, like, um, bureaucratic words and people are, I don't know. There's nothing, there's nothing more to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. And I think you know, we talked about cancel culture some on this too, but like, um, this has gone so far from the fucking plot over here, but whatever. Um, (laughs) But there is now online, I would say this is distinctly an online thing um, of like cancellation of people who don't use the correct terminology, not even terminology, but um, aren't hitting all the buzzwords that you need to be saying that day. Yeah. And therefore are cancelable. It's just a language thing. That's what it is. Yeah. The cancel stuff, it really comes down not to actions most of the time, but to language. Yeah. And you know what gets me too is that like people, even in people's like criticism of other things that should be criticized, like I'm thinking specifically about one thing that I saw on the internet um about Joe Rogan and like Joe Rogan interviewing Jordan Peterson. And like Joe Rogan said an objectively like ridiculous thing about like being colorblind yeah yeah and and it's like such a stupid comment but then this person said like the person's thing about like you need to deplatform joe rogan because nobody should have the audacity to even have this thought and it's like wait a minute like we're not (laughs) like we're not thought police over here like and and i think that that also like goes against I think that that kind of like punishing him, uh, like they're trying to say like this performativity of saying like, nobody should even have these thoughts kind of thing. To me, it's just like, you're just trying to get people to listen to your shit or like, you're just trying yeah. to get like people to retweet your tweet. The criticism has just gone to an extreme that is beyond what the thing actually should be criticized for, which is like a black erasure and like this whole notion of colorblindness, which is an objectively wrong thing but you can't, I don't know. Yeah. People just like use other people and like try to punish them to, as a performative thing to get a larger audience. There are ways to respond to that, that are not just like automatic punishment and not just like automatic deplatforming and censoring. There's ways to be like, okay, let's like talk about this rationally now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think I feel like actually Tim Heidegger has been on one for the Joe Rogan. He's just essentially like, Joe, please fucking read a book. Exactly. Like, exactly. Yeah. Jesus Christ. I did listen to you that just one. Agree with what, whatever anyone says to you. It's in totally. And then you do have a bunch of people listening who really stand Joe Rogan. Yeah. Just like stand him. Anyways, sorry. All of this to say. <laughs> Uh, I love this. <laughs> um, well, I think that like 
a rent is actually an interesting figure to sort of prove this like women are participating in the actual like in the discussion um and the thinking and like the what the fuck is going on kind of thing like that's what women are doing that nobody knows about what was happening probably during the civil war and probably during the american revolution um and and probably during ancient wars too is that women aren't just like sitting at home and waiting for the men to return from war like they're actually participating in the conversation and you don't you don't see that until until the 20th century yeah and then it continues on uh with vietnam (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we're skipping some stuff in here (laughs) but yeah like you do see a lot more um of women intellectuals uh and then also just women participating um, more visibly, more vocally, or at least more mentioned historically. Um, wow, that's like a little rhyme there for you. Uh, <laughs> Some wordsmithing by Mary. <laughs> yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, super, uh, everything changes in the 20th century, obviously. Um, But yeah, everything changes for uh, the women being left behind. They will not be made a fool. (laughs) They will not be made fools. And yeah, there's no, there's truly no going back. Um, Yeah. Postmodern and loving it. Oh, the World War II sad wives to the wing pipeline. <laughs> I mean, the more the the uh, more accurate is the women's suffrage to the wing pipeline, but we'll leave that for another another season. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I guess that's a good note to end on. Yeah, I think, you know, we have done all we can do in this one. (laughs) Shit's complex. (laughs) There's too much to talk about. Um, uh, Oh my gosh, you know, I live next to this historic bed and breakfast um, uh, that is the spy house. It's the Rosenberg spy house. Wow. And aren't aren't there ladies involved in that? Oh, you know, I'm, I immediately just thought it was Ethel Rosenberg that we were talking about. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. What is the Julius, Rosenberg spies? Uh, um, Julius yeah. and Ethel Rosenberg. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Spies. Um, yeah. Spies for, was it the, for the KGB? Yeah. They were espionage for yeah. the Soviet Union. And oh mm-hmm. my God, they got electrocuted. Yeah, uh, that's because of um, uh, Cohn. Uh, what's his face? Um, Trump's uh, Dude, mentor. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So KGB spies um, that were in that lived in Albuquerque, and they were going up to 
to Los Alamos spying and had people in Los Alamos spying and shit. And um, yeah, their house in Albuquerque is literally right next to where I live, right next to my apartment. I didn't know they're in New Mexico. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. And it's, oh man, it's, it's crazy. That's like the crown jewel of this neighborhood is the spy house. <laughs> I want to go. <laughs> it's crazy. It's kind of like, um, yeah, it's, it's decorated out kind of like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it really fulfills like the, the fantasy. Um, and yeah, they would go up to Los Alamos to figure out specifically like atomic bomb stuff. Yeah. World war two is like, like mm-hmm, a trough <laughs> of like crazy shit. <laughs> trough. <laughs> yeah. Um, we got a little into the trough today, but there's a lot more for later. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the next episode won't be so meandering. We'll see. We'll see. We can't make any promises. Well, cool. Thanks so much, Mary. Thank you, Bethany. Thanks for listening. Catch you later.